This is the daily podcast from St Paul's Knightsbridge, an invitation to pause for not more than 10 minutes each day to think, to reflect and to pray. My name's Alan Guile, and this week, five explorations in paradox with Pinocchio. In the world of thinking, the Pinocchio paradox, as we explored in yesterday's podcast, is one version of the so-called liar paradox. To recap, the thinking runs like this. You and I know that Pinocchio's nose grows when he tells a lie. Therefore, if Pinocchio is truthfully saying that his nose is growing, he must be lying. And so at the heart of the statement is a logical impossibility, a contradiction, a paradox. Paradox can be either a piece of logical absurdity or the vessel, the container for a spiritual puzzle or a mystery. Indeed, perhaps mystery is a better word than puzzle because puzzles have solutions, whereas mysteries have to be lived with and entered into. Entering into the mystery of a paradox can be a tool helping us to move beyond the world we are comfortable seeing and into a richer, deeper world in which we're pushed out of our comfort zone into a place of greater truth and keener insight. Jesus and the Church's story of Jesus embrace a number of paradoxes, which, as with the Pinocchio paradox, can be the grit in the oyster, which, who knows, may yield a pearl of insight in us, even one of great price. Tuesday being mighty and being lowly. This time last year, in early November, a UK study claimed to show a correlation between the part you played as a child in the school nativity play and your future earning potential as an adult. Those, the study claimed, who played Mary or Joseph tended to be those who were successful in later life, earning significantly more than mere kings or shepherds did. Who knows what the truth of this is? The study was of 2,000 adults, and so it doesn't sound on the face of it enough to be statistically significant, but it made a very good news story. And when you stop and think about it, we shouldn't be surprised if the same little boys and girls who push themselves to the front of the class with equal measure of charm and determination aren't the very same people who later in life do the same and get the top jobs rising to the top of the pile. QED. What though delights me about the story is the unacknowledged irony about all of it, particularly about the figure of Mary as the one who in later life comes out on top. Mary as a figure and as a symbol is all about the very opposite. St Luke loves, as it were, to break into song in his Gospel. His infancy narratives contain no fewer than four canticles, each an early Jewish-Christian song. There's Zechariah's Benedictus. The angels sing Gloria in Excelsis. Simeon bursts into the Nunc Dimittis. And, best known of all, there is Mary's Magnificat. My soul doth magnify the Lord. This song, the Magnificat, is composed by Luke, particularly to echo the song of Hannah in the first book of Samuel in the Old Testament, which in turn echoes themes from the Torah, the prophets and the writings. 
A central theme of both Hannah's song and Mary's, therefore, is the upturning of things in a new world, in which the mighty are put down and laid low, while the humble are exalted and raised up. Mary herself, in her maiden simplicity, the lowly servant in St. Luke's careful presentation, is the one who, by being lowly, is afforded greatness in God's plan. And this personal embodiment of the inversion of things becomes a key theme in the language of the rule of God in God's kingdom. So the idea that we pick star pupils to be Mary in nativity plays who go on to demonstrate their star quality by high attainment in later life is not a little ironic and indeed rather misses the point St Luke is trying to make. Jesus, long after his own nativity in Bethlehem, took another child and put them into the midst of the disciples. The person who would be great among you, he said, must become like a little child. And elsewhere, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And this theme of the upturning of expectation, and indeed the inversion of power, is expressed in the mystery of Good Friday and Easter morning, as the one who was cast down is raised up to new life, inviting the whole world to new life in him. We have, you and I, an ambivalent relationship with power and might. We long for it. One of the things we soon notice in life is that we love to depend on leaders and those set over us, but perversely we then love nothing more than undermining them or overturning them. We set them up to knock them down. It's classic organisational behaviour. For all this perversity, we love the comfort we derive from powerful people being, however briefly, in control of things, and we love hierarchy, and at least a small part of us loves the possibility that we might ascend in and through hierarchy to more exalted places, and why not? With position comes influence, and with influence comes the possibility of shaping the world for good. But in tension with this very natural and, as I say, sometimes very healthy instinct to enjoy power and to wield power and influence well, sits in our religious tradition the deeper wisdom that to be great is actually to be the one who serves, and that true greatness lies in true humility. Great leaders often have many great qualities but often I notice humility is not one of them. And even when it is, it sometimes isn't real humility at all, but just another aspect of pride and a distorted sense of who we really are. This paradox, then, is one that we need to live with and with which we need to wrestle and against which we need to test ourselves, our lives, our ambitions and our motivation, ideally daily. A prayer of Janet Morley. Christ our companion, you came not to humiliate the sinner, but to disturb the righteous. Welcome us when we are put to shame, but also challenge our smugness, 
that we may truly turn from what is evil and be freed even from our virtues. In your name. Amen. <laughs>